Russian music starts in 1836 with the premiere of Glinka's Alive for the Tsar. And it becomes a very important opera which starts almost every season since. You know, there have been various breaks, as you realize, you know, after 1917, after the revolution. You could not put it on for a while because you couldn't even mention the Tsar, so it stops being a season opener. And then in 1939, it comes again and becomes this season opener for the Soviet uh, stage. And, and even now, you know, it continues to hold this absolutely unique position in Russian culture. And so many composers were influenced by, you basically cannot st uh, start anywhere else. Yeah, so this is the reason. And uh, uh, this is Glinka, this is Mikhail Glinka, um, at around the age when he wrote it. Yeah, so 36, he was born in 1804, so he was 32 years of, of age. So Glinka was a Russian nobleman. Uh, he was a landowner, and so he had no need to earn a living. Yeah, so he didn't uh, particularly write music to earn his living. He didn't have uh, a career to earn money. And... Uh, um, you can call him a music amateur to, uh, to point, but he was very professional in his attitudes. You know, he went to study in Italy. He studied the, the Italian style of opera for um, four years, and then he went to Berlin to study with a very important music theorist, Siegfried Dane, and then he came back to Russia with this idea of writing a national opera. And when this opera was uh, performed for the first time, he wasn't paid for it, but he got a ring from Tsar Nicholas I, a very expensive ring. Uh, and he also got a job at the Imperial Capella. So that was um, his recognition. Uh, this job he wasn't very keen on, uh, I must say. But anyway, that's what, what happened. So uh, this uh, subject for a national opera, A Life for the Tsar, uh, he didn't come up with it himself. Uh, this is the man who came up with it, and uh, he was a very important figure, Vasily Zhukovsky at the time. He was a poet, he was a playwright, uh, he was a tutor at the court, yeah, so he was actually a tutor to the heir to the throne. He will become Alexander, yeah, after Nicholas Alexander II. And very importantly, he's also the author of the lyrics for the Russian national anthem, which he wrote in and 1933, yeah, and the lyrics uh, start God Save the Tsar because it was all modeled on the British one, which was the, absolutely the first. So, uh, so he was very close to the court, as you can see, and that was his idea. He even started writing a little bit of the libretto, but then he gave that up and, uh, uh, and gave the job to um, uh, this person uh, who, who was German, as you can see from the name, but here there is a Russified name, Yegor Rosen, yeah, so Baron Karl Georg Wilhelm Rosen, uh, who was uh, also a poet and also was somebody very close uh, to the Tsar. As you see, he was secretary to the heir of, to the throne and he was also a man of letters, generally a theorist of poetry, a poet himself, a publisher. Um, and uh, uh, the interesting thing is that he, he, Russian wasn't his native language. And because of that, this libretto that he wrote for this opera was always kind of maligned you know, and mocked. Uh, but uh, I think it's, it's an exaggeration to say that the words are so bad. And look at the other operas, they're not very much better. So um, when uh, the Soviets... Uh, 
officials started looking at the opera, they used this as an excuse to rewrite it completely. We will come back to that idea. But I think he, it's not true. And actually, he wrote a, a big treatise on um, how Russian um, verses should really lose the rhyme. Yeah, that, uh, so he was kind of progressive, and Pushkin was interested in that. So, so he's an interesting man. And again, very close to the throne. Now, this is an, another figure that I would like to introduce, although he has nothing to do with the opera, but uh, he was a minister of education, or uh, as they used to say, a minister of enlightenment at that point. So he was a classical scholar, a statesman, and uh, uh, he came up with a slogan that I'm sure you've heard of, uh, which is orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality, as a list of, so, three precepts, three main concepts for Russia, um, that uh, sort of separates Russia from other countries. This is what the foundation of uh, Russian development should be. And you can sort of imagine that this is really um, a conservative alternative to the French revolutionary slogan, yeah, liberté, égalité, fraternité. So this is what Russia should do instead, and that will help her to avoid all these nasty revolutions that happened in the 19th century. So, uh, and as you can see, the date is also 1833. I mentioned that the Russian national anthem was also 1833. Yeah, so this was uh, when this kind of official nationalism becomes promulgated from the top. And this, of course, is a very important man. This is Nicholas I. And uh, uh, what we know about his rule is that uh, he came at a very difficult time. There was the Decemberist uprising, which was a liberal uh, coup from, you know, in, in the very uh, upper circles of um, Russian uh, aristocracy. Uh, so that marred his coming to the throne. Uh, then there was the Polish uprising in 1983-31. That's usually also connected to music because we know that Chopin was one of the refugees who came from Warsaw to Paris. So, uh, and uh, of course, the Polish uprising yeah, pits the Poles as the enemy of the Russians. And that's very important because that's what the story of a life for the Tsar also does. Although the story comes from two centuries before that. And he also known for creating this so-called third department, which is the secret police. So uh, let us look now at the synopsis, at this story. So uh, it all happens in the spring of 1613, and that's the time of troubles. Uh, so it's uh, the interregnum uh, between Ivan the Terrible and the new dynasty, which is the Romanov dynasty, or shall I say it in the Russian way, the Romanov dynasty. Yeah? So if I get mixed up, it's still the same name. So, uh, and uh, of course, the Romanov dynasty was the one that lasted up to 1917. Yeah, the last one, Nicholas II. So it's a very important foundation myth, this story of the Romanov dynasty. So the village of Domnina, soldiers returning from battle report that Moscow has been saved from the Poles. And among them is Bogdan Sabinin, the tenor, I must say, who wants to marry Antonida, the soprano. That always happens in opera. So um, the, the tenor wants to marry the soprano. And then the Antonida's father, who is the bass, which is also typical, the village elder Ivan Susanin. So he says the wedding must wait until Russia has a legitimate Tsar. Yeah, so. Uh, there is this uh, link between one kind of 
crowning, yeah, because crowns are held when you have the bride and groom in the Russian Orthodox marriage ceremony, and the coronation of the Tsar. Yeah, so it's an interesting symbolic link. So Sabinian says that he has heard that the new Tsar will soon be elected, and that the local boyar, Mikhail Ramanov, is a likely choice, and everyone rejoices. Now, uh, where is uh, this Domnina? You can see Domnina is the, the, is the blue circle there, and uh, it's 250 miles to the northeast of Moscow. And you can see where Warsaw is, because we're going to have Poles coming. But um, why are they in Domnina? Uh, well, because uh, the Polish-Lithuanian kingdom was huge at the time. Yes, it occupied all these parts of modern uh, Baltic states and Belarus and even a large part of Ukraine and Russia itself. So it was really a most powerful kingdom. So we meet them in Act 2, which is mostly ballet, ballet yeah, as a grand opera usually would have it. And uh, basically Glinka didn't want uh, the Poles to sing very much. They mostly danced. Uh, so, at the ball given by a Polish detachment commander, a messenger reports that Mikhail Romanov has been elected and they decide that they must capture him at this Domnina estate before the news reaches him. So, the drama really picks up in Act 3, where Susanian uh, is preparing for the wedding, and uh, then the Poles turn up who require a villager to lead them through the forest to Romanov's residence, and uh, Susanian agrees, but his intention is to lead them into the wrong direction, even though he knows that he will pay with his life. So, which is indeed what happens in Act 4. Yeah, so uh, his adopted son then warns Mikhail Romanov of the danger, but Susanian sings his last aria and they kill him. Uh, and then in the epilogue, which is very important, when the scene switches to Moscow and on the Red Square, there's a big celebration of the coronation. And Susanian's family witness to the act of heroism that uh, made the coronation possible and the celebration continue again. So that's a very simple story which might remind you this genre of rescue opera when somebody is rescued. Yeah? So only the, the, um, there is a difference. You know, if you think of an opera like Beethoven's Fidelio uh, or other sort of French revolutionary type rescue operas, it's usually some kind of revolutionary that is rescued or saved from prison. And this is the opposite. Yeah, so Again, it's a kind of really Russian version of, of rescue, which is conservative and monarchist. So uh, why write this opera at that point? Because there was already one opera, this is a very kind of battered edition of it, uh, by Katerina Kavos, who was a Venetian composer and uh, lived most of his life in Russia. So he wrote his opera called Ivan Susanin on the same plot in 18, 1815. And it was hugely popular, uh, I must say. So it was still on stages even after Glinka's Alive for the Tsar was put on. So why uh, have another one? Well, uh, there's also an important date here, 1834, when Nicholas I visited Kastrama, which is the, the town, nearest town to Domnina, and met with Susanian's descendants. And here I must say, and that Susanian was actually a real figure. And there is one historical document that tells us, it doesn't tell us very much uh, about him, but it tells that um, the whole of, uh, sort of Susanian's family and all his descendants 
um, all the generations after will be spurred from paying tax because of his heroic deed. Yeah, so I think that's that's a very good deal, really. So, um, <laughs> um, so you can see that this story is still important for the Romanov dynasty. It needs to be refreshed, and of course. Kavos's opera was already old-fashioned because it was it was a zingspiel, yeah, which meant there were several musical numbers, like in Broadway musical, and in the middle uh, there would be speech dialogue. Yeah, so that already went out of fashion. And what Glinka wanted to do, he was uh, wanted to write an opera which would be all sung through, no spoken dialogue, and that was indeed the first Russian opera to do that. So that's why it's also important. So if we look at these dates again, yeah, the Polish uprising in 3031, official nationalism, uh, if you remember, yeah, uh, orthodox autocracy nation, nation is 1833, uh, 34 Nicholas I meets Susanna's descendants, and the same year Zhukovsky suggests this story to Glinka. So it almost sounds like it was a commission. Yeah, so it wasn't, was not sort of in reality a commission, but it almost was. So uh, a very political opera, which is um, uh, bound to present this foundation myth, myth of the Roman dynasty on stage. So uh, Glinka himself uh, also had his own ideas of why he wanted to write a national opera. And they weren't necessarily connected to this idea of monarchy. Uh, they were mostly connected to musical ideas of how to start composing in a national style. Because he knew the Italian style very well, uh, and he could compose in it, but he thought it would not be very suitable for a Russian plot, because he felt that Russians were different from the Italians. Right? They had different temperament. And a particular thing, one thing that he mentioned was this Italian liveliness. Yeah? No matter what they do in opera, various tragic things might be happening, but they're always kind of um, very lively. Uh, like this, for example. <laughs> So um, you recognize the style, yeah, that there's a lot of this very fast tempo and uh, sort of extreme energy. Um, and that was one of the operas that Glenka would have known that would have been premiered when he was in Italy. Yeah, so that's Donizetti's La Sonnambula, and that's Diana Damrau singing a part of it. So uh, uh, he wanted to create a national style, and the first thing that he had to think about it how he would go about it was to do something non-Italian. Yeah? So non-Italian, non-Italian, non-Italian. What do you do to make it less Italian? So it's a kind of the negative route towards a national style. Well, I will give you a couple of examples. One example is, for example, uh, that uh, Italians usually have these very long endings when things are repeated for a long time yeah and everyone gets more and more excited that at the end you know they burst into applause yeah that's part of the Italian style so Glinka thought that oh on the contrary I will actually make my endings more abrupt you know and I don't care whether they applaud or not 
you know, but I don't want to do it, you know, all this self-indulgent repetition. I'm a serious composer. Yeah, so, uh, so that's one thing. Another thing is um, Italian recitative. Yeah, you, you're all familiar with, you know, how um, these formula that Italian recitative uses um, can be very, very um, repetitive. And that's because they all reflect the intonations and stress patterns of Italian language. So if you were to just take this recitative and put Russian words to it, it would not sound very good. Yeah, it would just simply sound wrong. And Glinka could not quite solve this uh, problem yet. Actually, this problem will be solved by Mussorgsky, whom we are going to tackle next lecture. So, uh, and uh, he decided just to get rid of most of these recitatives and replace them with more singable parts, which we call arioso, yeah, and uh, you, you sort of build them on, on some kind of Russian popular song. So he, he couldn't quite solve all the problems at, at that point, but he certainly tried to avoid these Italian cliches. Did he manage that? Well, not quite. Yeah, and I will show you an aria from uh, the opera, this opera, A Life for the Tsar, which is Antonida's uh, uh, Cavatina. And you will hear that it's also very, very virtuosic and it has a lot of coloratura and the same kind of liveliness is still there. to show you that the ending is actually quite abrupt. Yeah, it could have gone on for much, much longer if it wasn't a real Italian opera. Yeah, and it, there is even in no break. Yeah, the next number comes straight on. So there is no pause for applause. Yeah, so this is how he uh, subverts this sort of Italian style. The second way um, to avoid, um, well, to, to create a national style in music was to do something new, something that has never been done before. And uh, uh, Glinka actually was very interested in that aspect. And why I have chemistry set here is yeah, because he actually, uh, in his next opera, would create a new scale. And he called it a chemical scale, yeah, because it was completely artificial. So it was a whole turn scale. So um, here he doesn't do uh, anything quite so radical, but there are these things that point out uh, the fact that he was really interested in innovation. Yeah, so this is, um, uh, don't be worried by music notation, I'll explain what it means. Yeah, so here he uses this very unusual time signature, 5-4. Yeah, so five beats to the bar. It's, uh, it's not something that is, we're used to, yeah, because the march is in four and the waltz is in three, and what do you do with five? What does it really mean? Uh, so, um, as you can see, if you look at the slurs on top, yeah, they divide it, subdivide it into three and two. Yeah, so five is just three plus two. So you do three, and then you do two, and then you do three, and then you do two. Yes, but there is another aspect to this, because he uses uh, in this... Uh, in this um, chorus, 
five-syllable words. If you can see the Russian word up there, yeah, just ignore the German. Razgulya, Lisa, yeah, it's the five-syllable words. Russian has very long words, unlike English. Razgulya, Lisa, Razliva, Lisa. Yeah, so it's actually um, a typical uh, meter for Russian wedding songs. But nobody would ever sing them in this way with every beat, one beat to the syllable. Yeah, so that is an invention. That is something interesting that he wanted to do. So um, this is what happens here. Let us hear it now. Lovely music, not scary at all, but it is in 5-4. So uh, now finally, the third way, and this is what you've been waiting for, I hope, yeah? <laughs> but I was trying to save it for the end, because we forget all about the other things, yeah? Something Russian. Well, how do you create something Russian in music? So you need to find something that's already been associated with Russianness, yeah? So you need to find music which is either based on folk song or popular song, uh, or maybe associated with Russians in some other way. And this is what we're going to explore now. Uh, so, that's just a bad taste in PowerPoint, I'd say. But <laughs> um, uh, sometimes you can't really resist temptation. So, um, what I wanted to start with is Glinka's only use of a real folk song. And the interesting thing about it is that he recorded it himself. He recorded it, obviously, not with a recorder because it didn't exist yet, but with a pencil and paper from a coachman. Uh, and this you know, tells you how interested he was in, in Russian folk song. But he doesn't actually use very many real folk song in that opera. And I think partly because he is not sure how to deal with them yet. He will find out in his second opera, but not quite here. And uh, if you listen to it, uh, it even doesn't sound very much like a Russian folk song. But it sounds like something unusual. And the, the, so the harmony is slightly awkward. So it basically introduces a little bit of exoticism. It doesn't sound very smooth like Italian music does. It introduces something unusual. So let's hear it. So that's Susanin, yeah, when he tells them that it's too early to think of the wedding. Once 
what he's trying to do already here at the start, he gives you the melody first with not much else going on, and then he starts varying it, adding various things. And this principle will become known as the Glinka variations, and then every Russian composer will be doing it. Yeah, so uh, it, that's how you uh, eventually they figure out what to do with these Russian folk tunes, yeah, is to present you the tune first and then play with it. Yeah, but uh, it doesn't happen immediately. So um, then, uh, in other, so that's folk song, really kind of what comes more or less from uh, the people yeah, that he met. Uh, but also there is another style which is uh, more popular, I would say, and I'm sort of, uh, it's, very, it's very similar to Western music because it's already been westernized. And so it's very difficult for Western audiences to actually recognize it, yeah, hear it, because, um, you know, how do you explain? You would say, well, this really sounds Russian. And they say, well, we don't hear anything Russian in it. Well, I do, because it's, it reminds me of various popular songs that were sung at parties in my childhood. Yeah, so this tradition still uh, survived. So I, you just have to take it on trust that actually, yeah, it, it does sound Russian. And when Sabinian, so that's the tenor, well, you will hear him in a moment, he's beautiful singing. Uh, yeah, so he has this sort of daring do, and, and you, he has this very wide intervals, and that reminds you of, of various Russian popular songs. <laughs> suddenly turned into an Italian. Did you notice yeah, how when they made this big leap and then suddenly became Italian? That constantly happens. Yeah, it's a kind of Russian-Italian, Russian-Italian. So uh, uh, now there is another genre, it's sort of more uh, middle-brow, I would say, rather than low-brow, and that's called the Russian romance. It's a type of drawing room song um, that you would have heard in Glinka's time. And are, that are still popular, yeah, Russian art songs sort of come from the same uh, source. And uh, what is interesting that this type of music Glinka used not only where it's most appropriate, for example, when there's a woman singing, Antonida, um, you know, laments Susania's departure and tells her friends about what happened, she sings a romance. But what is interesting that at the most dramatic moment when Susanian is about to meet his death, he also sings a romance. And that is really unusual because uh, it's a kind of domestic genre, so it's not elevated enough, you would have thought, for that, such a tragic moment. Yeah, you would probably need, you would have thought, that some kind of serious, elevated Italian-style aria, which would be very virtuosic. And actually, Glinka doesn't do that. Yeah, so he goes for this much simpler melody and uh, not very much virtuosity, not very much coloratura at all. But it's incredibly sincere, yes, of going from heart to heart. And people actually were very impressed by that aspect of the opera at the first performance. And one of the critics, Vladimir Radoyevsky, said this very famous phrase that in that scene, Glinka elevates Russian song to the level of tragedy. Yeah, so that is also something new that has not been done. There was lots of sort of folk song and dances uses, used in, in previous Russian operas, but never has it been used at, at the moment of such import, such seriousness. Uh, 
So let us hear it. harp doing this thing. You can do this on the piano if you accompany yourself or on the guitar. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of domestic music that's suddenly been raised yeah, to this huge height. And it's, it's a wonderful, uh, indeed a wonderful moment. So uh, what about the Poles? Yeah, so uh, he's trying to create this Russian style quite consistently. But there is one place where he avoids it altogether, and that's when the poles are, poles are portrayed. Yeah, so that is an interesting thing. It means that he's not writing the whole opera in the Russian style, but only where it's appropriate. Yeah, so it's still a local color rather than a style. Yeah, so the poles, as I said, they do not sing very much. They dance. And uh, they dance the Polonaise and the Mazurka, yes, the, the Polish dances and a couple of other dances. And mostly they dance in triple time, yeah, while the Russians sing in non-triple time, so, you know, common time or you know, two, four, four, four. So uh, that's how they also separate it. So this is the Mazurka. <laughs> I mean, this is the act that everyone always waits for, yeah, because suddenly you have this glamour and, you know, beautiful dances, and uh, it's, it's always paradoxical. Yeah, the, the enemy is portrayed as more beautiful than the, the good guys, but that's what very often happens in opera. So, um, uh, so everyone waits for this, for this dance scene. But interestingly, the mazurka becomes a leitmotif, yeah? So every time the poles come on stage, you hear the mazurka, which is a little bit naive, but the mazurka changes, yeah? So when they're in the forest and Susanian leads them to their death and they're tired and cold, it sounds different. slightly painful harmonies here. Yeah, so this is the poles. Um, and now I wanted to show you the two most important Russian numbers in that opera. And that's said that one is at the beginning and another one is at the end. So at the introduction, you have uh, this chorus, as you can see, and there is nothing uh, accompanying it, so it's a cappella. And the interesting thing that it starts with a solo and then it has a choral response. And this is what Russian folk songs do. Yeah? So Glenka uses that device to tell you that this is Russian music. And uh, uh, another thing that he does, and this is I'm going to sort of explain, it's not very complicated, but 
uh, I think it's quite obvious here. If you if you know how soprano, alt, yeah, tenor, bass, uh, choral score looks like, yeah, so there are usually four voices. And if you had something like a German chorale, it will be four voices all the way through. And something very strange happens here, yeah, that the number of different notes, or, or you know, the, the number of notes in the chord changes all the time. So you have two, and then you have three, and then you have four, and they suddenly resolve into an octave, which is essentially one note, yeah, in different registers. So that is very strange. So what was he trying to do here is to imitate what uh, Russian folk singers do, only they don't do it with Western harmony. So it doesn't sound anything like that when they do this in the village. But he's actually trying to imitate the, what we call the Russian heterophony, when the, the voices sort of freely join together and then separate. Yeah? So it, it, it's an interesting attempt to bring one of the Russian features into art music from folk music. But it's still, it's just a kind of an invention, yeah? because it certainly doesn't sound like it. And I can tell you, um, you can compare. Yeah? So this is what uh, this choral introduction sound like. give you uh, a Russian folk song uh, to compare it to. hear that there were more voices mm -hmm. and then they ended up on, on a unison or an octave, yeah, in exactly the same way. So that's what Glinka was trying to portray. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's still quite a big distance, yeah, between that and the opera. And finally, the, the, the finale, the epilogue, the glory chorus, yeah, so the coronation chorus, um, and that is another <laughs> Russian number. So you could hear there's a kind of military orchestrations there because there's a, a separate band, yeah, usually on stage, um, yeah. So which adds this military aspect to it. But there's also um, so that there's also another aspect which you'll hear in a moment from the bells that I used here. So he adds the orthodox bells into it at the climax. Orchestra gives you, you can say, is a symbol of autocracy, the state. Yeah, the bells give you orthodoxy. <laughs> you can see where I'm leading this. Yeah, so what gives you the nation? What is the Russianness of that particular chorus? 
Yeah, so I wanted to show you another technical thing about it, which is very Russian. It also has to do with voice leading. So again, um, there is something that you, uh, is different from Western Harmony, because in Western Harmony you don't really have the voices which uh, move in exactly the same parallel way. Yeah, we call it sort of parallel motion. And that is not a very good thing, yeah, because that kind of impoverishes the whole sound. But you can see that here there are two voices that are doing exactly the same. The tenors and the sopranos are actually doubled up. And the bass is the same thing, but a third lower. So, so the three of them are moving in parallels. And Glinka, he discovered that this is how people sang in Russian Orthodox Church. Yeah, especially in the small churches. That was the style. And when he wrote it down, he wrote down next to it, this is how it should be done. And then he rewrote it in the German style with voices yeah, moving in the normal kind of fashion without these parallelisms. But look, then he decides to actually revert to this style with parallel voice leading in the glory chorus, because it's national, because it's particular Russian. Yes, yeah, so it even kind of localizes that music and puts it in that uh, place. So you have this unruly voice leading of the people at the start, and you have this uh, uh, very systematic but not Western voice leading at the end. Yeah, so you can see it's all symbolic. And this uh, beginning and the ending of the operas actually meet in the middle when both of these musics are used when Susanian is arguing with the Poles. Yeah, and so he sings first uh, this one, and when he responds to them about the Tsar's house being uh, inviolable. And then uh, he sings the first one, and at that moment he rips his shirt, bears his chest, and that's a symbol of his heroic sacrifice. Yeah, so actually, you know, there's so much in this opera that is connected, uh, so thought out, systematic, yeah, structural, uh, and it all has to do with the idea of sacrificing your life for the Tsar. So, uh, precisely because this opera is such a perfect embodiment of this uh, triad, yeah, orthodoxy, ortho, uh, autocracy, and the nation, it was criticized very soon when the elite moved to the left politically. Yeah, so, in 1961, you see this quote from the critic Stasov, who says, perhaps no one dishonored our people so much as Glinka, who through his music of genius put forward the base serf Susanin as a Russian hero. That Susanin who is loyal as a dog, as narrow-minded as an owl or as a deaf grouse, a man who sacrifices his life in order to save a youngster who ought not to be saved at all and whom he, it seems, had never even met. Yeah, so that's Mikhail Romanov, who was 16 at the time. So that's not very nice, but nevertheless, the music is of genius, yeah, and this is why all of the composers who were led by Stasov to the construction of national style imitated Glinka, and we know them as the five or the mighty handful. So every single one of them imitated all of these things that I mentioned, all these Russianisms of Glinka. So uh, ideologically it becomes unpalatable, but musically it is still incredibly progressive. So that's why cultural nationalism becomes separated from ideological political nationalism. But there was a group of uh, uh, thinkers who actually thought this was uh, a great idea. 
um, to have this opera because it really pointed out to these uh, very important values for the Russian nations. So, and they were called the Slavophiles. And one of these important people, um, important Slavophiles was Alexei Khamikov. And this is what he writes down after seeing this opera. It was a time of troubles for Russia. There was no state. There was no sovereign to be the expression of the state. There was uh, no state, but family and community remained. They saved Russia. The vote of the people elected the Tsar. Uh, the great community closed its ranks and became a state again. Centuries have passed. The Russian state has become stronger. But the new invasion from the West requires new resistance. This invasion is not of the sword um, and of power, but of learning and thought. Now the danger is not to the state, but to the community and the family. Family and community once saved Russia. Will we be able to save family and community now? Yeah, this is a very familiar rhetoric, actually. Yeah, and it will come back many times throughout Russian history, these you know, conservative values. And also the idea that Russia should have its own way and move uh, in, on its separate path uh, not the Western path. So that's what Slavophiles thought. Now, uh, this is uh, already uh, the changed text. And this is, I'm going to jump forward now to 1939, when a new uh, edition on, uh, of A Life for the Tsar comes on the Soviet stage during the Stalin period. And of course, it couldn't be called A Life for the Tsar, but it is called Ivan Susanin. Uh, I would say uh, this is the most remarkable thing that happens, yeah? because, of course, after 1917, it falls off the stage because you can't even say the word Tsar. Yeah? So there is no way to perform it. And yet, in 1926, it comes back under the name of Hammer and Sickle. Yeah? Now, you can never imagine that, but nevertheless, there was this adaptation. And it often happens in opera, yes, that the text is just rewritten. And in fact, lots of French grand operas were done like that in Russia for reasons of censorship. So, uh, but these were not really serious, you know, nobody took them seriously. In 1939, uh, in fact, two years before 1937, the state really took, uh, undertook huge efforts to create this new viable Susanian. And uh, there was a uh, government commission, Stalin was participating in the creation of that. And the, the poet who wrote, uh, among others, you know, the, these lines was Sergei Gorodetsky. And uh, he wrote this libretto, um, f four different versions of this libretto. So every time he would write it, he would give it to the government. They would read it, give it back, He'd give them a comments. He would write it again, and so on. And this final glory chorus, um, you see this line from it, he rewrote 98 times. <laughs> and this is why it's so bland, yeah? <laughs> Because basically you can't say anything there. But it also sounds like it's, uh, we are not in 1613, but we are in 1937, yeah? Because the world is with us, with communism, with the Kremlin, yeah? So it becomes kind of social realist opera, socialist realist opera. But uh, there are very interesting things that happen to the plot in the, uh, in the process, because um, you couldn't really have, um, obviously, Susanian saving the Tsar. So he has to save something. But what is it? Yeah, uh, so they decide, oh, he's going to save Moscow. Uh, 
But why would the Poles be looking for Moscow 250 miles to the east, right? Doesn't make sense. So they had to move the village of Domnina and put it next to Moscow. Okay, that's all right. Then uh, there's a problem with the seasons because, uh, you know, the, the opera is set in the spring and that's when the, uh, the Tsar is saved. But to save Moscow, that was another uh, historical occasion and that has to be in the autumn of 1612, uh, and so it has to move to there as well. So it's both geographically problematic yeah, and chronologically problematic. And it becomes also very vague, because lots of things, yeah, you, you have to just sing praises of Russia all the time instead of the Tsar, and it's not clear why the Poles are still coming to Susanian. Do they really not know their way to Moscow? And uh, you kind of doubt this, even though it was before GPS, but nevertheless, you still doubt it. Uh, or maybe they just want to kill Minin, who was one of the commanders. And it, it sort of, it's unresolved. It's, there's vagueness in this opera. But nevertheless, we have this, uh, this thing. And I'm, I'm going to show you how uh, this was staged. This is a part of a Soviet film from 1952. So this is how this final chorus was staged. You can see it's like a parade, yeah? And you can see two people there. I'll explain in a moment who they are. Yeah, so these people are Minin and Pajarski, the two commanders, and why they're standing there? Because there's actually a monument to them in exactly that place. Yeah, so that was another way to create this connection between 1613 and you know, 1939, this kind of historical continuity. So it was indeed a very uh, uh, successful remake, and, uh, and that, that was the Susanian of my, of my childhood. Um, and there are various fun, funny stories that happened to it, because you know, I remember being taught at the conservatoire of how to teach this to small children. And we were, said, we were told, you know, oh, look how Glinka follows the words, how he sets the text, you know, this usual thing that they, how they teach children about you know, various vocal music, you know, look how he reflects the text. And I raised my hands very timidly, you know, miss, you know, Tatiana Fyodorovna, whatever, you know. But uh, the text is, didn't exist then yet, you know, because it's the Soviet text from 1939. So I was not very popular after that. <laughs> so this is, you know, people really did not know what the, the real text was. Um, so until uh, 1989, one, the, during the perestroika time, and you have the new production, and the text is restored. And... Uh, uh, in the epilogue, they have, again, uh, the grieving family, because during the Stalin time, that was cut out. You didn't want to interrupt the celebration, really, yeah? because at that point, Stalin came in, usually, into the royal box, and everyone started applauding him. Yeah, so um, uh, it, it was a kind of performance of the state in the opera house. You didn't want to interrupt it with music like that. Yeah, that's what happens in the score in between the two glory choruses. 
So uh, finally, um, I, you know, what happens now? Uh, and the very interesting thing, the, the shocking thing that happened in 1998 is that part of the Stalinist production was merged with the old text. If you see what I mean, yeah, so the production was so beloved by the Russian public, apparently they couldn't deal without it, yeah, so again, they put back the parade, they removed the, all the, the grief and the finale, it all became celebratory, um, and the text remained, uh, the, the text about the Tsar. So what happened is that you have these wonderful autumn sets with wonderful leaves, as you know, Russian set designers can do, and the chorus is singing about the ice breaking on the river because it's the spring text. Yeah, so well, that's probably the least of the absurdities that you encounter in opera, so um, people didn't notice. So suddenly, recently, in Putin's time, this became, again, a very important story. Because we used to have the revolutionary holiday on the 7th of November, and that's where people had their rest. And then we couldn't have it anymore after 1991, so it was replaced by the 4th of November, which happens to be the day uh, when the, uh, Moscow was taken from the Poles in 1612. Yeah? So the Susanian stories is important once again. And I will give you, I will end my final clip here is from this ideology guru um, of the Russian government, Alexander Dugin, who was this slightly uh, unsavory and scary character. But um, yeah, so I'm just going to, uh, the, the text is already here. I just want you to hear him enunciating it in Russian. <laughs> Ведь наша идеология блестяще выражена в последних словах оперы Глинки. Славься, славься, святая Русь! И далее. Празднуй торжественный день царя! Ликуй, веселися, твой царь идет! Царя-государя встречает народ! So, um, this is 2016, and this is Dugan's own. TV channel, which is called Tsargrad, Tsar City. Yeah, so what is going on? Has the message of Glinka's opera finally uh, found its perfect, uh, perfect time for itself in now, yeah, in, uh, at the present? Or uh, are there going to be more modifications and modulations of that plot? So I will leave you with this thought. Thank you very much for your attention.